before. That was an aside. That doesn't count to my sermon time, just so you know. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. I would invite you to follow along with me as I read to verse 31. Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 31. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the, that is in the water under the earth, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore... The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire." A jealous God. When your father, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all of your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we do come to you and ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your holy sight. We pray, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the things that we must take care of as it relates to our heart and the exercise of the Christian religion is that we do not find our faith influenced by the language, the posture, the behavior, and the doctrine of Egypt. And when I say Egypt, I mean the world, that which we have been called out of. We must also acknowledge That even in the life of a Christian, in the life of every single Christian, in the life of everyone that has been brought out of Egypt, there is a longing to go back to the delights of Egypt. 
Slavery is the instinct of a sinful heart. And you may say, I don't A, like that word, and B, that's not who I am. Children, every one of you that seeks to be free from the authority of your parents in rebellion is falling headlong into slavery. You may not see it that way. They see it that way. They know more than you, and so they try to warn you, don't do that. Don't go in that direction. Walk another way. And you may say, no. I mean, I think I hit on this this week. Can you tell I have teenagers? (laughs) Can you tell that I was once a teenager? And I look back and go, oh, man, why did I not listen? The only liberty that is available to you and to me is the freedom that comes in knowing and doing the will of God and belonging to him through Christ Jesus. Christians are the only freemen of this world. And not of their own doing, but they have been liberated by the God who says, I am that I am, let my people go. We are no longer imprisoned in sin. And so God, as he has delivered Israel thousands of years ago from the land of Egypt, and he consecrated him in the Red Sea and then brought him to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, or Horeb, Mount Sinai, for worship, he calls each and every one of us to come to his holy mountain and to receive from him what he says. All that he says. Nothing more and nothing less. We are a people of the book. This book. The holy, inspired, infallible word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. When I say nothing more, what I don't mean is we don't study other curriculum. We do not seek to worship other gods or establish other worldview paradigms that removes God from the center of all things as creator and redeemer. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says, as it relates to his revelation and our tendency to worship idols, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. There is an Egyptian desire to to sort of compare God to creation and to access God through creation. But God has revealed to us another way. It began at Sinai and it continues to this day. In fact, we don't even do this with people. Can I quote Shakespeare? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know this one? Sonnet number 18. Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Even Shakespeare struggled to use language to describe the beauty of the one who held his affections. How much more God? What is he like? How do you begin that conversation with your children? How do you begin that conversation with an unbeliever? Right here. What have God said he is like? That is what we are going to look at tonight. Two points that I want to make. Since you saw no form, that's the first point. Since you saw no form, secondly, God will not share 
his glory. Or the colloquial title I have written, God won't share his glory. God will not share his glory. Let's look at the first point. Since you saw no form. Moses is speaking to Israel and he is laying out for them again the law. That blessed revelation of God that will show them, tell them, teach them how they are to live. But first, we need to understand what revelation is, what it does, and how we identify it from other things. First, revelation is what God has said to us as authorized, having come from his mouth. What you have before you, in your Bibles, is a translation of, and very good translations of, God's holy inspired word. In its original languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a little Aramaic. These translations that you have are incredibly precise. What we confess is that when God spoke, he spoke true, understandable, life-giving words. He spoke to us. Now, he has done so through the prophets and the apostles and a couple of kings and others. God gave to Moses five books. He inspired Moses by the Holy Spirit, and here in particular at the mountain, to instruct Israel how they are to live. And what he has said is the law. And what God hath not said is not the law. God makes it abundantly clear who he is and what he expects of us. And we are not to add to God's revelation anything that we may invent, even with good intention. In fact, Westminster Larger Catechism Question 91, what is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. God does not ask us to do something he hasn't told us to do. Or not to do something which he hasn't. God has told us exactly how we are to live. We receive what he has revealed, period. And we use what he has said works. We are not to be novel or clever. I don't mean smart. But we are not to say, well, what about this? No. God hath said. In fact, that tendency, that urge to add and therefore corrupt what God hath said is the tactic of the serpent in the tree. Did God really say What was he seeking to do? Undermine the confidence of the woman and the man in the revealed will of God. Did God really say that? Well, now that you mention it, uh, have you ever had that moment in your life? Maybe you don't know what is the right thing to do. Or you begin to equivocate sin and you think, well, I guess I can just ask for forgiveness later. It's not that big a deal. Nobody will ever know. That person won't tell anyone else. (laughs) This is how we often equivocate. We are masters of it. But we must see that God has set up boundaries by and through revelation. And that his mediation with Israel at the mountain 
was designed by him to reveal something about himself, but not in the form that they would expect having lived in Egypt. Now in Egypt, what do the gods, what form do the gods take? Well, the God who waits to eat your wicked heart in hell is a big old alligator. Makes sense, right? The heart eater. The uh, Egyptian god of fertility was a frog. His name was Hoppy. That's actually true. You can't make this stuff up. It's wonderful. What about the sun god? What about Ra? What about Pharaoh? In fact, all of the plagues that God brought against Egypt were little... Well, If it weren't so violent in its effect upon the Egyptian people, it's almost... Humorous in its irony. It is humorous in its irony. Every single one of those plagues was a direct assault against an Egyptian god that Egyptians put their faith and trust in. The Nile itself was sacred. God turned it to blood. You believe in the god of fertility? I will give you more frogs than you can count, and you will not step without stepping on a frog. Or the son of Pharaoh, destined to be a god. Died. God is saying to Israel as they are watching Egypt suffer, I am God. He is striking reverence into the heart of one people and fear into the heart of another. And still Pharaoh did not relent until God covered over the army of Egypt in water. He drowned them. And so when God brings Israel to the mountain and they, you would think, are soft to what God is about to say, what do they do? As God is in no form revealing himself to Moses through the Ten Commandments, preparing to wed himself to Israel, Israel is committing covenantal adultery at the foot of the mountain by worshiping God through a golden calf. They just can't get it out of their system. You can't get it out of your system. Can you? It is, it is the habit of sinful people. And God is saying, you will not worship me in that way. You will not equate me with the things that I have made. I am greater, more glorious, holy. I dwell in inexhaustible light. Do not forget where you came from. And do not worship me as you saw the Egyptians worshiping their gods. Now the psalmists in two locations speak of what happens to those who worship idols made by human hands. They worship and they become like the thing they worship. And what happens to those idols? They burn up. They burn up. One of the things I think we are reminded of, and even in our own nation, is the insecurity of the retirement account. That's my security. Or the job. The house. The family. All of these things that are good and good gifts. But they're not they're not God. We take security. And then, lo and behold, this tiny little thing 
invisible to the naked eye, comes in, and it reveals just how strong we are. What do we do? And for a year, people are freaking out. And what it has shown is, we have placed our security in the wrong thing. And so we leave the mountain of God and we find ourselves constantly going back to Egypt. And God says, that is idolatry. And the way in which you access an idol is the same way in which you created the idol. You access it through an image. All idols are the invention of human Men, they never rise above the status of creature. And even though we may assign to these things philosophical, ideological responsibilities and duties, they are always leashed to us, tied to us by the nature of our invention. Allah is the invention of a man who took Jewish revelation, the revelation of God in the Old Testament, and he corrupted it so he could commit rampant wickedness and justify it. And every other God is just like that. Every God that stands at the top of a cult or every other false religion is a God that must be accessed Through human invention. And so that God is always limited to, his power is confined to the sort of limits of our own imagination. And it is always a corruption of God, who is God. And God says, you will not do that to me. And this is how we avoid that. We do not invent we receive. We do not create. We receive God's revelation of himself. And we are not to forget it. We must acknowledge that God is trustworthy and true. And that the manner in which God has chosen to reveal himself is the best way. We must trust him. We must understand that as God has delivered us, As our Redeemer, He has every right now to tell us how to live. And He has shown us in His Word. And so we must do two things in light of God's revelation. If God has said it, it is important and you must take it to heart. If God has not said it, and if you are uncertain, then default to what God has said. Start there. Start with the Ten Commandments. Start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Start with the gospel of John and the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus. In fact, the book of Exodus is one of the most clear narratives that encapsulates the entire course of human redemption in the people of Israel in the story of Egypt. And as Egypt is, or as Israel is preparing to go into the land, God is saying, leave Egypt at the border of the Jordan. Don't take it with you. Don't bring that trash into my house. Don't bring it in here. I don't want you 
to start building idols to me because you're not actually worshiping me. You're worshiping the devil. This is serious stuff. And this is where we live now. We think we are smarter than God. Now, the way... Maybe I'm being tough. I'm, I feel like I'm being kind of harsh. Um, the, this, um, Heidelberg Catechism says it this way in questions 97 and 98 about the second commandment, images. Question 97, may we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. Question 98. I love this question and answer. Because it has kind of a a naughty word in it if you're a little kid. And I loved naughty words when I was a little kid. Question 98. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for laity. So a book with an image of Jesus in it. What's the harm? Well, here it is. No. That's not the whole answer. No, comma. For we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of, here it is, dumb images, but the living preaching of his word. Now, lest you think this was written by a kindergartner and they're just saying the word dumb like you're a meanie or you're stupid, Dumb means what? What is a dumb person unable to do? Not communicate. Images say nothing about God that we need to hear. But the word says it all. You gain nothing except to be led astray by seeking to access God through a picture a carving, or any other created thing. You don't worship God through the majestic eagle, right? You don't say God is like an eagle in the way that God says that of himself, that God is some sort of uh, pagan deity with the body of a, I don't know, come up with something, the sphinx. It's always this amalgamation of animals in their various parts that represent unique natures like strength and dexterity, power, No. God does not leave us without access. In fact, what he gives us is true knowledge of himself and a powerful means by which it is communicated. But we must surrender to that method. Now, what I am not defending is the OPC's denomination of the second commandment. I am towing the company line right now, however. The OPC says, get it out of here. We don't want it in the sanctuary. We don't want it in your homes. Get rid of those images. We are iconoclasts. Why? Well, let's say, let's say you were to come to visit me in my office. There's a picture of my wife on my desk. It was the day that she gave birth to my daughter, Eleanor Louise Fowler, who's somewhere out there. She's asleep. Of course. <laughs> and I, I have that picture there on my desk. Well, let's say I have someone in my office and I say, have you seen a picture of my wife? And I turn the frame around. It's a picture of an old girlfriend. Now my wife is like, this is not a good example. But what would you think? Dude, 
That's gross. What are you doing? That's not your wife. Well, no, sure. It is. It's a woman, right? Brown hair. Kind of similar looking. They're both women. What are we doing? To whom shall you compare God? The level of offense, if my wife A found out about that and were to see the picture and go, that's not me. How often do we seek the aid of creaturely things in order to access God, full access granted to us already by Jesus Christ? The cross is the access. Or we seek to represent him before men in a way that he says, that's not me. What are we then doing? We are holding up a picture of someone that is not God. How then do we hold up a picture of God? Well, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. God shows up through preaching, through the ministry of the word. God will not share his glory. Which is why even in my preaching, I must present to you an accurate portrayal of who God is. God is very interested in our getting what he looks like right. Now, what does Jesus look like? Can you tell me? Can you tell me and not get it wrong? Because that's the issue with the person, Jesus. He had a form, but the scripture says it's not the form that's important, only that he's human. In fact, if you were to look at Jesus, you wouldn't see much but just a man. What does he look like? Long hair, short hair, big nose, small nose, brown hair, blonde hair. Do you know what every culture has done in images of Jesus? They make Jesus look like them. Do you know what that is? That is the definition of idolatry. And it's a problem. Because man cannot help but make himself his own redeemer. And that is a problem. And when God is calling Israel to the mountain, he wants them to be very clear how they got there and how they will get into the land. And he's also saying this, I see it coming. I see it. I see in every single one of your hearts the corruption. The corruption that even as you, verse 25 and following, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. If, well, what happens? They do it. God is preparing Israel for why it is he brings judgment upon them. And why 
Why does God bring judgment? Because we go after lesser gods. He gives to us the very thing we are asking for in our pagan worship. That is, if you worship the God, you become like the God. And if God, Yahweh, is in the business of rolling pagan gods under the kingdom and bringing them to nothing, then all who seek their hope and trust in them will be brought to nothing. And that is, that is the gospel. It's said this way, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And it is a gospel that many of us, A, don't want to hear, and B, don't want to say. Because what it means is, we have to tell other people, oh, by the way, you got some idols in the trunk, in your heart, in your pocket, in your home, right now. And God is offended by those things. And the most offensive ones to him are the ones where you say what God really is. You see this all the time. If you're online at all, you see all kinds of people telling you what kind of God he is and not from the scriptures. Why? Because they need God to be that way. Because if he's not that way, they get the fire and not the water. They get the wrath and not the mercy. Because Romans 1 holds true. All men suppress and exchange the truth of God for a lie. We are all building, if we are not careful, a pantheon of gods that sit there and congratulate us on our own morality. God says, if you flee from my presence, if you do not take care and begin to worship idols made of human hands that cannot hear, eat, or smell, then there will be wrath. But even as there is a promise of coming judgment, there is also a promise of coming mercy. Every single one of you, every single one of you must burn your idols in the fire. And the way that you begin that crusade of killing your idols is that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and says, those are idols. Clean it up. Cast them off. Leave them behind. Don't bring that stuff into this house. And it, it can be gentle. It can be firm. But it, it is primarily revealed to us when God did take form and appear among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ did not appear to us so that we could build a statue of him. Christ appeared to us so that he could die so that we might be redeemed and be raised and then ascended into heaven. And we're not to sit here and go, all right, if we're going to reach the world, we got to figure out what Jesus looks like. So, listen... I want you to start thinking about that. And I want you to make a carving. And and we're going to put these things up here on the wall so that when people come in, they see and go, I believe. No one has ever done that. That's never happened. The only time someone has believed is when God has taken the word and he has changed the heart of a sinner. 
and turned them from an idolater to a worshiper of the true and living God. And we say, words are not enough. And God says, you're right. Your words are not enough. And so Christ says, I will send you a helper. And he will be with you to the very ends of the earth. To the end of time, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will instruct you. In fact, we have now an even greater gift than Israel had at the mountain. Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit in such measure that not only do we have this incredible call not to make images, but we also have this even greater substitute. It's not a, that's the substitute. An even greater offer that the Holy Spirit is with us in our ministry. So that we might say, even now, whether or not you know how it really happened, you are part of the kingdom because the Holy Spirit breathed life into you through the ministry of the word. So what does the world need then? The word. Just the word. Rightly preached. Aptly spoken. Poured out. This is how God blesses his people. Brothers and sisters, everything that is needed, we have here. So may we lay aside these images. May we lay aside our sinful tendencies to access God in any way that he has not prescribed. It's dangerous. It is not authorized, and it does not lead us to God. In fact, it leads us to the devil. Brothers and sisters, what we have in the word is life and health and peace. And the only way one who can break the cycle of our idolatrous invention is the one who is revealed. The Holy One of Israel the Messiah himself. And so hear the word, embrace the one who speaks, and know that even though this word was spoken thousands of years ago, it still changes hearts and lives and brings men and women and children into the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do ask,